Idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura is a rare disease that's been difficult to treat. Is a new solution here? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss a new generation of treatments for idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura is Dr. David J. Cooter, Chief of Hematology at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Dr. Cooter is a board-certified physician in internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology, and chairs the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia subcommittee of the NIH Network for Transfusion Medicine and Hemostasis. He's also a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Cooter, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you, Dr. Bloom. It's a pleasure to be with you today to talk to you about this new area of research. So idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura, or ITP, has been classically thought to be a disorder of increased platelet destruction. Why is that the prevailing thought? Well, again, the ITP, or idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, has been demonstrated back in 1950 to be due to antibodies that bind to platelets and direct them to the spleen where they're destroyed. This is based upon a classic experiment in medicine where a clinical investigator named Harrington actually took blood from patients that had the disorder, injected it into himself, and caused his platelet count to drop. When they purified the material that was being injected into him, it turned out it was antibody he was infusing into himself, causing his platelet count to drop low. So that's been the classic model of platelet destruction in ITP. And have we used that to try and come up with treatments for the disease over time? Most, if not all, current therapies for ITP are directed solely at at affecting platelet destruction. For example, uh, a classic therapy for ITP is to to remove the site of platelet destruction, which is a spleen, by having a splenectomy. Other therapies have been directed towards making the antibody, which is usually an IgG antibody, disappear. And those are modalities such as prednisone, chemotherapy, and the new drug, rituximab, which decreases B-cell production of this antibody. What happens when we do a splenectomy on these patients? Does it work? Well, basically, splenectomy has been a tried-and-true procedure for many decades. It was the first therapy that was shown to be effective in ITP almost uh, 60 years ago. By removing the, the site of plated destruction, 80% of patients will have their plated count respond within the first month. That response is durable uh, out to 10 years and probably 60% of all patients who have ITP. And when the spleen is removed, what happens to the antibody platelet conjugation? Does it go someplace else to get destroyed? Does it just float around into the platelets work? What happens? In most patients, the antibody does not disappear that binds the platelets once the spleen is taken out. In some patients, you can actually show the antibody disappears, and there's been a modest theory that that's not been well proven that the spleen may be the major site of antibody production. I, I personally don't buy that. In situations where people fail to respond to splenectomy, the antibody which is persisting coats the platelets probably to a greater degree, and they're now cleared by other reticular endothelial cell organs such as the liver, lungs, and other places. So the antibody rarely disappears after splenectomy. Newer data suggests that ITP is also a disorder of decreased platelet production as well. So what's the research that's led to this conclusion? Well, interesting enough, back around the 1918 era, uh, several investigators uh, postulated two theories of ITP with very little experimental data. One investigator thought that ITP, as I mentioned before, was simply a destruction of platelets probably by the spleen, antibodies not yet being known about then. And the other investigator thought that back in the 1918 era, that this was due to the fact the body wasn't, was not making platelets well. So the concept of having decreased platelet production ITP dates back to about the 1918 era, 
it was expa- expanded upon by a, a very famous hematologist named Damashek around 1950. He also proposed that many patients with ITP probably had a problem with inadequate increased plated production ITP. But what's happened recently is uh, several investigators have shown using what are called plated kinetic measurements, you label platelets and inject them into patients, that the production rate is low. In addition, recent studies by McMillan and others have actually shown that antibodies that you purify from patients with ITP can actually in tissue culture directly inhibit the growth of the precursor cell, the megakaryocyte, that makes platelets. And finally, if you uh, uh, give patients drugs, as we'll talk about later on, that increase platelet production, that tends to ameliorate the thrombocytopenia, which occurs in this patient group. So are these two different diseases, the diseases of increased destruction versus those of decreased production, or is it all one and the same? I think right now we should think of ITP as a disorder of both increased plated destruction, which happens in most people, as well as a lack of an appropriate rise in plated production. So in any one patient, these two things live in some kind of balance, destruction and production. And in my experience, some patients are probably more profoundly affected by the failure to make platelets, and other patients are more profoundly affected by the rapid destruction. So it's, a, it's quite a, a broad spectrum, but in general, we should think of ITP as a, a disorder in, in all patients of destruction of platelets and inappropriate production of platelets, the normal compensatory mechanisms not working. So for these patients that have ITP, do they make the normal amount of platelets that anybody else would, and then some of them get destroyed, and then they don't rebound the way they're supposed to? Is that what I'm hearing? Well, I think if you think about if one is the normal production rate, in kinetic studies in ITP patients, it's been shown the production rate may rise twofold in some patients, but usually does not change at all in most patients. The maximal compensation that we think people can make is maybe a six to tenfold increased rate of platelet production. So most patients with ITP have a normal rate of production or slightly increased, but aren't compensating fully as they might otherwise do in a perfect situation. What molecule regulates this platelet production? When was it discovered? The molecule that regulates platelet production is called thrombopotent. It was postulated to exist back in the 1950s by a researcher in Middle Europe named Kellerman, who thought that a molecule like erythropoietin for, pl- for red cells must exist for platelets, and he postulated the term thrombopoietin. This led to an amazingly long period of time, almost 40 years, before the molecule was identified, purified, cloned, and sequenced, and that occurred back in 1994. So after some 40 years of, of experimentation, we actually identified this molecule and knew what it was in 1994. It's the sole regulator of platelet production. If you genetically remove this molecule from uh, an animal, for example, the platelet count drops to about 10% of normal. There are some individuals who are born without this molecule or its receptor, and those individuals, they, they live well, they have low platelet counts, but the counts are about 10% of normal. And you mentioned the receptor. Where is that receptor lie? The receptor for thrombopotent, we'll call it the thrombopotent receptor for these, these discussions, but it's historically a receptor called the MIPL, MPL receptor, that was identified back in 1992, two years before thrombopotent was identified. Basically, the receptor was found to be present in an oncogenic virus that caused bone marrow problems in mice. When that receptor was cloned and sequenced, it was found to be a new receptor, and it was found primarily on megakaryocytes and platelets. We now know that the receptor is present at a very low level in many bone marrow cells, including the stem cell, but its primary mode of action, meaning where it is working the most, is on megakaryocyte progenitor cells 
and megakaryocytes. So if you give a, a, a culture of bone marrow thrombopoietin that binds the receptor on megakaryocyte progenitor cells and makes them grow into megakaryocytes, and they in turn make platelets. So is there a way to increase TPO production in the body? Well, interestingly enough, the thrombopoietin is made at a constant or constitutive fashion in the body. Nothing we know so far can increase or decrease its production other than damage to the liver where you would remove part of the liver. So we can't directly stimulate the body to make more thrombopoietin. This liver damage, does that increase or decrease the amount of thrombopoietin that's made? Well, transiently, if you, if you would just you know, highly damage a liver, a small amount would be released into circulation. But with liver damage, such as cirrhosis, the production of thrombopoietin drops enormously, and that's why most patients with cirrhosis have diminished platelet counts. And what are we doing to try and find a way to increase this TPO production in the body? Again, there's, right now, though, there have been many efforts to use other drugs to try to increase uh, endogenous thrombopoietin production. To date, nothing has been identified that increases your normal production of thrombopoietin, which is why exogenous thrombopoietins, those made by the biotechnology industry, have been very effective in this area. So what TPO analogs have been developed, and how did the first generation work? Well, soon after the, the cloning of thrombopoietin in 1994, two recombinant molecules entered clinical trials. One was called recombinant human thrombopoietin, which was basically a molecular mimic of the native molecule present in all of us. The other was a molecule called PEG-MGDF, which was a smaller protein coupled to polyethylene glycol. And both of these molecules entered very aggressive clinical trials in many areas back in 1995. To make a long story brief, these molecules were found to be effective in increasing the platelet count in patients who were getting routine chemotherapy, such as that for lung cancer or ovarian cancer. They increased the platelet count in patients who were apheresis donors. These are people donating platelets to the blood bank. They helped some patients with ITP have their platelet count rise, and they also benefited a small group of patients with a thing called myelodysplastic syndrome. What was surprising is the molecules didn't have any effect in the areas where platelets are commonly required for patient support, such as acute myelogenous leukemia and bone marrow transplantation. And do we have any idea why they worked for some patients and not for others? Well, I suspect the, the major reason why they worked in, in, in some situations is the presence of a reasonably normal bone marrow and no things that suppress the marrow. I think the reason they didn't work in bone marrow transplantation is because the levels of thrombopoietin in those individuals were already quite high because the liver was still making adequate amounts of thrombopoietin. And probably secondly, because the marrow did not have many bone marrow cells in it that could be acted upon by this hormone. And what are the next generations of TPO analogs, and how are they different? Well, again, the, the reason the first generation analogs failed the test wasn't because of lack of e efficacy. They failed because one of them, the pegylated MGDF molecule, had antibodies developed against it that cross-reacted with the native thrombopoietin present in all of us. And as I mentioned, our liver makes a constant amount of thrombopoietin every day. If an antibody occurs in our bodies and binds that thrombopoietin, we effectively knock out thrombopoietin production in a, in a human, and that's exactly what happened in 13 individuals in a clinical trial I helped run back in the late 1990s. So this led to an attempt by our, our very fertile minds in biotech to develop molecules that were not antigenic and yet stimulated the, the platelet count. So that there have been several types of thrombopoietin, what are called memetics, that have been made. One are memetics based upon the protein structure of thrombopoietin. These are peptides that bind the receptor but don't have an amino acid sequence like that of thrombopoietin. These will activate the thrombopoietin receptor and, in general, turn it on and increase platelet production. Since peptides have a rather short half-life, they've been 
insinuated or inserted into other molecules such as IgG to give them a longer half-life. In contrast, screens for small molecules, chemicals that stimulate platelet production and bind the receptor have been very good in identifying molecules that bind the thrombopotent receptor and activate it, and these have generated chemicals which are orally available. You can take them by pill form rather than injection that increase your platelet count. And finally, there have been several monoclonal antibodies that have been made that bind the receptor and activate it. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David J. Cooter, Chief of Hematology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School, for joining us to discuss a new generation of treatments for idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcasts, visit www.reachmd.com. For comments or questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening.